Hi, and welcome to Make Me a Medic. We are a group of high school students from the UK who are desperate to be doctors. Join us on our journey to medicine. In this week's episode, we're going to be discussing the ethics question, abortion and work experience. Let's start by discussing last week's ethical question. Should the UK have an opt-in or opt-out system for organ donation? The organ donation system in the UK is a hot topic at the moment. With the new opt-out system set to be implemented in England last year in 2020. Before this change, we actually had an opt-in system whereby you needed to register yourself as an organ donor. The decision was actually made because there were roughly 5,000 people waiting on the transplant list. And it was estimated that three people died every day while waiting for an organ transplant in the UK alone. Therefore, it was imperative that the UK found a way of increasing the number of donated organs to combat this. That's why we now have an opt-out system, but that ethical issues surround this. Well, let's consider the four pillars of medical ethics. Autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence and justice. Autonomy would be against an opt-out system because opt-out assumes that everyone has given consent to have their organs donated. But everyone has the right to decide. So if they wish to be on the organ donation list, they will choose to register for it. Although this becomes difficult when surveys have shown that many people who haven't registered wish to donate their organs or wouldn't be bothered if their organs were donated after death. Perhaps the demand for organ transplants is more important. With an opt-out system, people are still allowed to keep their organs. However, they would have to apply and let the NHS know that that is the case. Considering beneficence. Having an increase in available donated organs will be beneficial to patients waiting on the transplant list. It will mean more people can get transplants from organs that suit their bodies, and less people will die from waiting. This also links with non-maleficence, as failing to provide organs for these people, when there are many potentially available, could be seen as doing harm. However, if you consider non-maleficence, it could be argued that the UK should have an opt-in system. Some people do not wish to donate their organs, or to receive donated organs, or even blood products from another human. Many of these individuals put this down to religious grounds, such as Jehovah's Witnesses, while others have this as a personal view. Therefore, it will be detrimental to these individuals to donate or receive another organ, and will cause them harm. Finally, in terms of justice though, Wales has an efficient opt-out system, and it's only fair to offer the same to people in England. Both sides can be supported by medical ethics, but having an opt-out system would do the most good. So now we've discussed both sides of the ethics question, let's talk a bit about work experience. Work experience can be a really important part of your application as you get to observe doctors at work and can form a better understanding of the medical profession and whether it suits you. However, just getting a week long in a GP surgery or or hospital and stating it in a personal statement isn't going to be of much use. To show universities that you have truly gained something from the experience, you need to be able to reflect and show that you have an insight into the profession. I recommend bringing a notebook with you and just take brief notes on your observations, anything a doctor has done which you think was really good or conversely an interaction you perhaps felt was flawed and your own feelings toward what you've seen. Yeah. Medicine is an incredibly challenging career, 
And you will most likely be exposed to many unpleasant scenarios during work experience that you will never have really been in before. It's a great way to highlight the negative aspects to medicine and not just the glorified parts you see in the media. My work experience took place on a paediatric neurology ward and it was incredibly hard. I saw children who have very severe conditions and who were in a lot of pain and who sometimes didn't have a good life expectancy or a low quality of life. And despite the challenges of, you know, seeing such young children be so badly affected by illness, it did teach me a lot. I became more aware of the issues people face with chronic illnesses every day and the way a lot of issues such as migraines, which we dismiss on a daily basis, can be really debilitating for people. I particularly remember when a consultant doctor broke the news to a mother that her baby had no brain function and was likely going to die within the week. And it was absolutely heartbreaking. However, I got to see the empathy with which the doctor broke the news. And it gave me a lot of insights into the challenges of medicine and how to deal with uncomfortable scenarios like this. By the end of the week, despite all I had witnessed and the challenges which I was exposed to, I had reaffirmed my decision to become a doctor. I'd seen the way doctors improved patient lives and I knew it would be worth the hard parts. So I was so lucky to be able to get this work experience and getting it can be a really big challenge. So Mariam is going to give you some tips on how to get some really good work experience if that's something you're looking to do. Here are some tips for how to find work experience. Firstly, if you have any connections, use them. Parents, friends, family, friends, your friends' parents, reach out to them and ask if they'd be willing to offer work experience. Secondly, email hospitals and GP practices and email as many as you can. Eventually, one in 50 might reply. There are also organisations which help students find medical work experience, but they aren't the fastest at responding, so I'd recommend emailing them way in advance. While work experience is useful, it is not a requirement. There are many ways to show your dedication to medicine without work experience, like volunteering at care homes, charities, and anywhere with public contact at all. This shows your communication skills and your desire to help people. Now is an especially hard time to find work experience. So Lily, do you want to talk about how to gain an insight into medicine from home? Yeah, so due to COVID-19 restrictions, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to see a doctor in action anytime soon. But it's still very important to gain an insight into medicine. Therefore, to make sure you're still gaining a realistic insight from your own home, these are some ideas of things you can do. You could reach out to doctors and medical students. This will give you the chance to ask questions about the role of a doctor and working in healthcare. If you're not able to find someone that's free to have a quick chat, you could try contacting a medical student. Understanding a day-to-day -day life of a medical student is also very important as an aspiring medic, and chatting to current students can give you an idea of what this involves. There are many doctors and students who are keen to offer advice and support. Finding work experience during the pandemic isn't impossible as thankfully there are many online alternatives. For example, the Brighton Sussex Medical School has set up free online work experience that you could do from home. This goes over multiple sectors of the NHS and allows us to see the behind the scenes of medicine. It is very interactive and educational. Another online alternative is set up by the Royal College of General Practitioners, 
which is also free of charge. This focuses on GP clinics and the multidisciplinary team within them. It's also very interactive and informative, as well as being shorter than the one provided by the BSMS. These online work experiences, although they are not face-to-face, are great with providing you with some core knowledge and transferable skills that you could bring up in interviews and personal statements. And if you reflect on them, you're guaranteed to learn a lot of valuable information. As the main thing that universities care about is what you take away, not what you have done. Obviously, your personal statement is only the first part of your application. And after that, should you be successful, you will be given interviews at universities to see if they want to accept you into medical school. And there, obviously, you will have to answer a bunch of questions based on many different scenarios. And ethics is a very important part of your medical interviews. So with that in mind, we're going to discuss the topic of abortion. Abortion is a medical hot topic that is very likely to come up. And, you know, it is a really common one to bring up. So you want to be very well educated on it since this is, you know, they will definitely be expecting you to know this. So what is abortion? To start off with something simple. Um, An abortion is defined as the medical process of ending a human pregnancy so it doesn't culminate in the birth of a baby. A pregnancy can be terminated by taking medications or having a surgical procedure. Under the 1967 Abortion Act, abortion is legal in England, Wales and Scotland up to 24 weeks of the pregnancy in most cases. An abortion may only be legally carried out if two doctors agree that continuation of the pregnancy will negatively impact the woman's physical or mental health or that of her existing children. An abortion is only legal after 24 weeks for three reasons. If the woman's life is at risk due to the pregnancy, if the child will be born with a severe disability, or if there is risk of grave physical and or mental injury to the woman. Although it is generally safer if abortions are carried out earlier, and the vast, vast majority of them are, there is a really small number of abortions which do occur in the third trimester. However, these are usually medical emergencies, so they tend to not get discussed as often. So, right, what types of abortions are there? So, there are two types of abortion. The first is surgical abortion, and the second is a medical abortion. Surgical abortion involves an operation to remove the pregnancy from the womb. In cases up to 14 weeks of pregnancy, vacuum or suction aspiration can be used. In cases after 14 weeks, dilation and evacuation should be used. Medical abortion involves two pills, which should be taken 24 to 48 hours apart. The first pill is mifepristone, which works to inhibit progesterone, the hormone that maintains pregnancy, and must be taken at a clinic. The second pill is misoprostol, which induces contractions in the womb to pass the pregnancy and can now be taken at home or at a clinic. It seems weird that abortions can be done at home. How has this become possible? Well, this was first allowed by the government in August 2018. The new law was that women in England would be allowed to take the second early abortion pill at home. This came into effect on the 27th of December 2018 and has brought England in line with Scotland and Wales. Women are still able to choose to take the second pill in the clinic if they want, but this change prevents the risk of women miscarrying on their journey home, which was previously quite a common painful and traumatic experience. So was this a good idea? Well, legalising the use of the second pill, misoprostol, at home has been well received by gynaecologists. The president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, 
described this as a compassionate measure which symbolizes, quoting, a major step forward for women's health care. It prevents the distress and embarrassment of pain and bleeding during the journey from home. Uh, however, the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children believes this move further trivializes abortion as it pushes women to experience the emotional and physical trauma of a miscarriage without the actual medical supervision. Their concern is that this may compromise women's well-being. Right to Life has also expressed their concern about the ability to adequately monitor who takes the pills and whether they are taken free from force or cohesion. So what are the ethical problems when it comes to abortion? So there is significant legal debate surrounding abortion. And obviously, you know, some countries such as Northern Ireland, even though the rest of the UK has legalised it, still haven't. And countries such as Poland have been in the media recently for delegalizing it, and certain states in the US are also moving to delegalize abortion, with some already having put more restrictions in place. So this means that this has become even more a medical hot topic. And the debate centers around beliefs about when the fetus becomes a living organism, and thus when abortion becomes murder. Some people believe that abortion at any point in the pregnancy is murder, whereas at the other end of the spectrum, Others argue that abortion is acceptable at any point during the pregnancy, as until the child is born, they do not consider it to be alive. As what we consider a sentient life is incredibly unclear, this debate will most likely continue for a very long time. However, despite your own personal views on abortion, it is important to understand the arguments held by people who hold a different view from you. And there are obviously, you know, two sides to the argument. So there are people who oppose abortion and they are described as pro-life. So what does pro-life mean? Those who are pro-life will believe that life begins at the point of conception, so they consider abortion as murder at any given time. Some have personal ethical reasons for this belief, while others have religious qualms regarding abortion. Instead of carrying out an abortion and taking an innocent human life when born, people believe the child can be adopted if the parents are not able to cope with looking after the child. This, however, is not an ideal solution, as foster care comes with its own kind of worms. Some believe that even if a woman is impregnated as a result of rape, the child is innocent, so it shouldn't be punished for this crime. All these consider justice for the fetus. Also, a regretful abortion can lead to psychological distress, which ties in with the medical pillar of non-maleficence. All children have great potential, and a woman could possibly decide to abort a fetus that may have been extremely important to society or to the world. However, this argument does not take a woman's potential without an unwanted child into consideration. The alternative opinion is called uh, pro-choice and describes those who support abortion. These people tend to believe that if abortion is carried out in the first about three months of the pregnancy, at which time the fetus cannot independently exist outside of the mother's womb, Therefore, it cannot be regarded as a sentient life, and thus abortion is not murder. The pro-choice argument places the value of a living person above the value of a potential life and allows people carrying the fetus to make the choice for themselves. If we look at IVF, some fertilised eggs are thrown away or destroyed 
and they could be considered human lives, but destroying them is not considered murder. In the case of rape, forcing the the women to keep the child could be more psychologically damaging than aborting it, which relates to beneficence. An abortion might be necessary to save the woman's life in certain cases, and thus this option should be taken when necessary, rather than risking the mother's life. This also links to the fact that keeping abortion legal will prevent deaths and complications from unsafe backstreet abortions that are carried out in secrecy. Also, regardless of a woman's reasoning, having a child that she does not want can negatively impact her mental health and perhaps lead to the abuse of the child. Additionally, pregnancy and birth comes with significant risk of harm for the mother and she should not be forced to carry a child, thus putting herself at risk. This shows how pro-choice supporters really focus on beneficence for the mother and even for the fetus as well in some aspects. They also believe autonomy to be of great importance. Regardless which stage of the abortion debate you fall on, the majority of people can agree that lowering the abortion rate is a positive outcome. And there are many ways through which to do this. Comprehensive sex education teaches people about how to safely use protection and explains to young people how to prevent unwanted pregnancy. Teaching young people how to have safe sex is vital, as not only does it protect you against STIs and it protects the well-being of young people, it can also dispel common myths such as you can't get pregnant the first time you have sex, which isn't true, obviously. Um, And additionally, providing safe and free access to contraception can limit the chances of unwanted pregnancy. And it is important that seeking contraception should not be stigmatised against. There are many types of contraception, such as the pill, IUDs, the coil, condoms and the implant. And offering access to these, even to those under the legal age of consent, is important. And this is also another common ethical question. Discussions on if young teens are competent enough to be given contraception confidentially is important. And this is what the Fraser Guidelines are for. But what are the Fraser Guidelines? Well, in 1982, Miss Victoria Gillick took her local health authorities to court to stop doctors from giving contraception to people under 16 without parental consent. This then went to the House of Lords, where in 1985, the Lords voted and instated Gillick competence, which we will discuss in a future episode, and the Fraser Guidelines. The Fraser Guidelines are a series of rules laid out for doctors as to advise them whether they should or should not give contraception to young people. So these are the Fraser Guidelines. Number one, the young person must understand the advice being given. Number two, the young person cannot be convinced to involve parents or carers or allow the medical practitioner to do so on their behalf. Three, it is likely that the young person will begin or continue having intercourse with or without treatment slash contraception. Four, unless he or she receives treatment slash contraception, the physical or mental health or both is likely to suffer. Five, the young person's best interests require contraception advice, treatment or supplies to be given without parental consent. These guidelines are incredibly important to know for interviews, so make sure you look up the Fraser guidelines, you understand what they are, their importance, and how they affect people's lives. They are vital in preventing teen pregnancy and thus abortions, and so we should look at all these rules and be happy that they are in place. 
So right, now we've covered another medical hot topic, let's look at our ethical question for next week. So our ethical question for this week is, why is it important to be empathetic towards patients? Leave your answers on our Instagram post and keep in mind the four pillars of medical ethics. We'll discuss the answer next week, so stay tuned. A quick shout out to everyone who answered last week's question. Patrick Moody, Jean Baker, Lee Taylor, Tom Schilling, Fraser Ross and Owen Davies. The best answer goes to Patrick Moody. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Make Me a Medic Podcast and share us with other expiring medics. Join us next week for another exciting episode.